Olaso. This afternoon we'll, of course, return to the practice of the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness. I mentioned, I think in the, in the conversation with Anna a couple of days ago, that it is possible to actually achieve shamatha, achieve the first jhana, the second jhana, in loving-kindness itself, as well as the other of the four measurables. But it may not be intuitively obvious how this occurs, so I thought a couple of minutes devoted to that might be helpful. Not that we'll be you know, necessarily taking that as a main practice, but to get more in the mood of, of how it takes on greater depth. And that is the discursive meditations. And I've given fairly elaborate ones. This afternoon I'm going to give a much more concise one. But the discursive meditations, where we're bringing to mind individuals, images, we're drawing on memories, we're arousing, arousing aspirations, maybe doing visualization, sending out light and so forth, all of these are designed to, to wake up, to wake up the heart. What is certainly not true is loving-kindness is not something conjured up with the thoughts. It's not made of thoughts. It's not a conceptual state of mind. But the thoughts are, rather than thinking of the thoughts as generating loving-kindness, because that's not my experience at all, the thoughts actually generating it, it's rather thinking thoughts and images and so forth that are in tune with, almost like a a, um, what do they call them? The polar, po- polarized lenses, on a, like, like sunglasses, polarized lenses. And you polarize it and then the light comes in, polarize it this way, the light doesn't come in. When we are thinking thoughts, creating imagery and so forth, arousing desires that are polarized in accordance with loving-kindness, then loving-kindness flows through the lens of the mind. Where is it flowing from? The depths of our own awareness, ultimately Buddha nature. But so much of our thinking that's, that revolves around I, me, mine, I, it relationships, craving and hostility, I like, I don't like, that, that's just like the, the, polar, the polarized lens, is that what they call it? Polarized lens? It's like the polarized lens just kind of blocking it. And so the concepts don't create loving kindness, but they can block it, right? Isn't it quite true? For example, if one is a racist, well, then you can just block any type of empathy for people of a different skin color or maybe shape of the eyes or something. Oh, they're not like me. And then, and then it's blocked off, right? And so to think, oh, Asian people are really like me. They're really like me. And have, you know, if, if one was raised as, as, as a, a racist and thinking Asian people or, I don't know, Eskimos, just somebody who's different, then one might have to engage in a practice. Eskimos, Inuit, they're really like me. And then by thinking they're really like me, then... <laughs> One overcomes the ridiculous obscuration of thinking Eskimos, South Americans, Asians, or what have you, are not like me. You overcome that, and then the empathy, the loving-kindness flows. So the thoughts, the discursive meditation, are designed more to counteract, I think, it's my intuition, more to counteract ways of thinking, attitudes, and so forth, that completely obscure, that block the flow of loving-kindness. So what are they good for? To open up the flow, like many of you are finding a flow of prana in the body, this opens up the flow of loving-kindness. And it can be with these fairly elaborate meditations that, as I've guided in the past, they can be much simpler in the, in the Theravada tradition. Often they don't give such elaborate meditations, but simply a few phrases. A few phrases, or it can simply be one phrase, may you be well and happy, may you be well and happy. That pretty well sums it up. If you think of may you be well as hedonic well-being, in good health and so forth, having enough to eat, clothing, shelter, medicine. And may you be happy, as in genuine happiness, 
ultimately enlightened itself, may you be well and happy pretty well sums it up. So it may be something quite simple, just focusing and arousing just the thought, may you be well and happy, well and happy. And then, whether it's an elaborate discursive meditation or something as simple as, may you be well and happy, then, after a while, it's almost like starting a, a, turning a key in an old car. You know, finally it kicks over. Finally the engine starts turning over, and you then, what do you do? You don't need to keep on cranking it. In fact, the car clearly doesn't like it when you do. It screams at you. But once it's turning over, then, then, you, hit the, then you hit the accelerator and, and on, your, on, the, on your way you go. So that's how you move from jekom to jokom, from this more discursive meditation. It's not analytical, but it is discursive meditation, because we're not analyzing. In this discursive meditation, until the engine turns on, and you really feel that flow of, of, of affection, of kindness, of warmth, of really wishing the other person well. And then as, as, that, arou- as, as that is aroused, then, you, of course, you don't keep on cranking the, uh, the key. Then you rest and you go more into just the settling. And there you practice shamatha. Now, what are you attending to? As Sebella said, you're attending to sentient beings, one or many. But what are you developing shamatha in? You're not developing shamatha on focusing on sentient beings. Oh, yes, I'm getting a stable image of the sentient being. It's getting a clear image of the sentient being, as if you're just you know, having a sentient being as your object. What you're developing your shamatha in is the stability and clarity of the aspiration of loving kindness. And that just flows. That flows. So that's where the stability and vividness, the sense of ease, first of all, the stability and vividness are subjective. If you're focusing on a Buddha image, it's just the opposite. That is, you're clear, still clearly developing stability and vividness of your own mind, but it's reflected in the object, right? And here it's really largely subjective. You're not, you may not be getting any crystal clear images of sentient beings, but you are getting a crystal clear experience of the loving kindness arousing. And then when it gets vague, when it gets vague, it's kind of like, hmm, I think it's fading out. Well, we'll call that laxity. And then what do you do? You arouse your attention, and then once again, may you be well and happy, or you may do visualization, you may practice Tonglen, you may engage in a more elaborate discursive meditation until the clarity of it, the real clear sense, yes, this is indeed loving kindness, this is the aspiration. And as Anna said, it does have a feeling with it, has an emotion with it. Yes, okay, it's going again, the, the engine is purring. And when it's up again, then, and simply sustain it until eventually it's up and then it sustains and you don't need to keep on cranking it up with more and more of the conceptualizations just as when you are getting really into the flow of shamatha in any other method when you're really cruising without laxity then you don't need to keep on arousing your attention okay so final point before we jump in i was quite insistent with anna uh, but with everybody it's not directed anywhere, any particular place. And that is that this loving kindness, the compassion, they are aspirations, they're not simply a feeling. They're not simply an emotion. And they certainly come with a feeling and emotion, but they themselves are aspirations, they are yearnings, they are longings. And this is, uh, for those of you familiar with uh, Mahayana Buddhist iconography, it's quite clearly displayed. What does it matter? I mean, why should I nitpick about that? Why not just say, okay, if you, if you feel it as an emotion, you feel it as a feeling, well then that's fine. You know, that's, that's no problem. Why was I kind of, no, oh, it's an aspiration, it's an aspiration. The reason for that, number one, it's true, so that's always good. You know, I didn't make it up, it's not an interpretation. I mean, that's just, 
That is the Buddhist definition of loving kindness and compassion. They are aspirations. But there's something about them that is enormously important. It relates way back to George's comment some weeks ago. And that is, is this a proxy, a proxy, a substitute for doing some actual good in the world? You know, just sitting in, in your meditation cushion and just feeling really loving and really loving and really compassionate and never doing anything at all. It's kind of a sad substitute. I mean, you feel really good, but for everybody else, why should they care? So you feel good. So? So what? You know? Why not just settle in the substrate and experience bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality? If you just want to feel good, shamatha will do it. And the point here is they being an aspiration. Then as authentic loving kindness and compassion arise, they do indeed poise you. They make you poised for action. So you're, you're, when you get off your cushion, then you're poised. If you see someone who could really use a hand, that you could, we could help them out, help them find you know, whatever they're looking for, directions on the street, you know, or they're trying to get into your lane on the, on the freeway and you're really in a hurry. But it would really make them happy to get into your lane because, you know, that's what they wanted. They're going blink, 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 blink. And you say, do I let them in or not? Do I let them in or not? Well, if you've just come out of loving, loving kindness practice, okay, <laughs> let them in, you know. It's going to cost you about two seconds slower to get to your destination. So it will poise you. The loving kindness will poise you for loving behavior. The compassion meditation will poise you for compassionate altruistic behavior. You're ripe. You're like a fruit that's just ready to drop off the tree. Okay? And I mentioned uh, Mahayana iconography, and that's where we'll stop. Uh, but this is wonderfully symbolized in two images that sprang to mind this afternoon. And one is for loving kindness, it's Maitreya, the coming Buddha, the fifth Buddha in this cycle of a thousand Buddhas, Buddha Shakyamuni being the fourth. The fifth Buddha, Maitreya, is said to be dwelling in. In the, in the realm of Tushita at this point, and we, when he's symbolically or archetypally portrayed, he's portrayed sitting on, a th on his throne, and how is he portrayed? He's standing. What's that? He's standing. When he's sitting on it, when he's sitting on his throne. Yeah, sometimes standing, but when he's sitting on the throne, how is he portrayed? It's actually si very significant. That's very true, but what about his legs? There we go. There we go. His legs are down. Right? His legs are down. So he's not sitting like this. He's perched over there with his legs down, as if, oh, maybe he's going to be a Westerner. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> Forget about it. <laughs> no, it's not that. Why are his legs down? Lung chow chow. Yeah, because he's just about to get up. You see, I'm not just about to get up. In this I'm not even near. I mean, I, I really have to unfold, and that's true for all of us here except for maybe George and a couple of you sitting on chairs. Uh, but in, this, is, this is classic India. And so when the, when the feet are down, they're not turning this into a Western chair. He's getting off his throne, which means Maitreya, and the word actually means loving kindness. It's a derivative of Maitri, which is metta. He's getting off his throne. He's going into action, moved by loving kindness. So there's one beautiful, beautiful image of it. And he's... he's He's perched, he's poised, he's ready to go, right? Ready to come. And the other one is Green Tara. There are many manifestations, 21 to be specific of Tara, the feminine embodiment in these archetypal representations or personifications of enlightened compassion. So Tara. And so there are many representations, but one which, which is actually the primary one is Green Tara. Green, again, all of this being symbolic. Green symbolizing dynamic energy something really in motion, really getting out there and doing something. 
And how is green Tara portrayed? Think again, legs. Yeah, one leg, namely the right leg. The right leg is already extended. Like, you know, maybe it's asleep. What do you think? What's, what's with the one leg? You couldn't handle full lotus? I mean, I can at least do half lotus. You can't even do half lotus. What's with the one leg? <laughs> you know? And what's the one leg coming out for? Yeah, she's coming out. She's already been in meditative equipoise as white Tata. And that's, I'm in, I'm in the zone. But now as green Tata, then one leg is coming out. And she's ready, just like Maitreya, with his two legs down. Her leg is, one leg is out. She's already in motion. She's in motion. She's not just hanging out there, giving, you know, giving her, leg, her, her leg a stretch. But she's in motion, and she's ready to launch. And that's the nature of compassion. That's the nature of loving kindness. They're ready to launch. Okay? Let's launch. One session. <clears throat> <clears throat> In our individual meetings, many of you now have commented to me that you're finding a deeper sense of relaxation than you've ever found before. Energies are flowing in the body like they've not flowed before. So we see this settling in a posture of ease, both mental and physical, is itself an act of loving kindness for yourself, giving yourself a break, easing up, softening up. Enter this session in the spirit of loving-kindness by settling your body in its natural state and letting your breath flow like honey, effortless, unimpeded, smooth as silk. For a little while, settle your mind at ease, at rest and stillness in the present moment, 
with its own innate clarity, vividness. By gently observing the sensations of the in and out flow of the breath, relaxing deeply with every out breath, gently arousing your attention with each in breath, quietly releasing thoughts, As we attend to the sensations of the breath, we're attending to a flow of actualities, the actual sensations arising from moment to moment. In this ongoing flow of becoming, nothing static, nothing stable. As we move now into the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness, Let's move into the realm of possibilities. A realm in which something may never become so, unless we believe that it may. That believing itself is a natural force of nature, creative, dynamic, constructive. So drawing on your own creativity, your imagination, bring to mind your own flourishing. What would make you truly happy? What is your highest ideal? to realize your own full potential, fulfillment, from what would you love to be free, with what qualities would you love to be endowed.
what kind of a person would you love to become? Consider that your imagination may not exceed or transcend your potential. That in fact this possibility could become an actuality, but only if you embrace it heart and soul and devote yourself to it with the belief that it may indeed become your reality. Arouse this yearning now, if you will, with each outbreath, this yearning of loving kindness, that you may find the happiness you seek and cultivate the causes of such well-being.
and imagine it to be so. Imagine here and now, realizing such fulfillment and such purity. Now direct your mind, direct your attention to someone who is very dear to you. The classic teachings from Buddhaghosa suggest choose someone who is still living, so not simply a memory. Bring to mind someone whom, when you encounter this person, you just spontaneously feel a sense of warmth, affection. You see something lovable in this person without trying, an endearing quality. Direct your attention not just to the image, the appearance that you generate in the space of your mind, but use that appearance, use your memories to direct your attention to the person, him or herself, who is alive and well, or alive and not so well, as the case may be, someplace in this world. Sustain the flow of your awareness with stability and clarity as you attend vividly to this person. With all the endearing qualities that come to mind. I refer, of course, not to an I-it relationship of this person bringing me pleasure, but simply my delight that this person should find happiness. And my wish, my aspiration, may it be so. May this lovable person find the happiness, the joy, the satisfaction, the fulfillment that he or she seeks. And with each out-breath, 
Simply breathe out the wish. May you be well and happy. With each out-breath, imagine it to be so. Imagine this person realizing his or her own heart's desire. Then direct your attention to another person. It may be a family member, a friend. It may be someone you only know from afar, not so personally. But for whom you again spontaneously feel a sense of closeness, of affection, of admiration and love. And practice as before.
imagine this person finding the joy that he or she seeks. Wishing that it may be so. And finally, in this session, bring to mind someone whom you know quite well, but for whom there may be no special feeling of closeness, no particular attachment. It is said by Buddha Gosa that the immediate cause of loving-kindness is seeing the lovable quality in the other. Attend closely now to this other. Until you perceive the lovable quality that you know to be present in yourself, and arouse this yearning with every outbreath. May you be truly well and happy, like myself. and imagine it to be so. And for just a brief while, expand your awareness in 360 degrees, above and below. And with every outbreath, arouse a yearning, may we all be truly, truly well and happy. And imagine it to be so.
can release all appearances and let your awareness rest for a moment in its own nature. Let's bring the session to a close. This is a reminder, they're called the Four Immeasurables, because the, the wonderful hypothesis in Buddhism is that all of us sentient beings, excluding no one, that each one of us has a truly boundless or immeasurable capacity for experiencing each of these virtues of the heart, and immeasurable means that all the barriers are broken down. So in the practice that we've done together, I've stopped short at the focusing on the neutral person. So we focus on the very dearly beloved one, then perhaps a little bit more casual loved person, a loved one or friend, out to the neutral. But of course, if this is to become immeasurable, if all the barriers to be, are to be broken down, then you would, like a tsunami of loving kindness, you would go out to the people who you find a little bit disagreeable, and the people you find really rather irritating and to the people you find really quite repellent, and to the people you find are really quite malevolent, really do nasty things, manipulate, cheat, exploit, harm other people, and then out to those people who may have done that to you. And those are the barriers. To my mind, and, I've, and these, this is not just my own special thought, but to my mind it's enormously important in such practice that we do not ever flavor it with even a tinge of hypocrisy. Pretending, pretending something that we don't feel at all. You know, I don't think that goes anywhere good. And so we start on safe ground, bringing to mind the loved one. We'll start hopefully at safe ground with ourselves, although there may be some remedial work to be done there. By then to the loved one and so forth, out to the neutral, probably not too, probably not too horrendous, probably not too difficult. But as we move more, more into enemy territory, that's exactly what it is. It's called the friend, the neutral, and the enemy, right? The enemy... The enemy is not, in, in Buddhist terminology, the enemy is not somebody you despise. The enemy is somebody who despises you. That's the real enemy, who wishes you ill, 
that, and so forth. And so, because obviously you can't, you can't simultaneously feel real repugnance for someone and, oh, by the way, I love you too. So there's, in a way, love thy enemy. I think in Christianity it must have gotten to this because you can't love your enemy. If by enemy you mean somebody you really despise, you can't love someone you despise because as soon as you love them, you no longer despise them. So I would suggest, I'm superimposing this on Christianity from since love, love, love thy neighbor, even love thy enemy is certainly a Christian virtue. I'm superimposing this on Christianity. Maybe I'm, I'm treading on thin ice here, but I'll go back to my, my little comfortable cave in Buddhism. And that is, you can love your enemy. You can love your enemy, not to say that you can love somebody while despising that person. You can love one, someone who despises you. You can love one who appears to you you know, with very, very strong mental afflictions, behavior that is really repre reprehensible, and you didn't make it up. Their behavior is really awful, and you can still practice loving-kindness for them. You may practice loving-kindness for a person who harmed you, maybe even egregiously. But this means a lot, of, a lot of barriers need to be broken down. And it's just breaking through layer after layer of layer of I, it, I, it, I, it, until we finally get to someone, oh, you're like me. And if you've already established the ground, as the Buddha himself said, establish the ground, first of all, of loving-kindness for yourself, that you're not entering into in the old trap of an I-it relationship with yourself. I, you know, feeling you yourself are not really worthy of happiness, not really liking yourself, looking in the mirror and saying, eh, you know? Breaking through that one, so certainly breaking through the I-it relationship with ourselves, and then if we've done that and we finally get to the disagreeable person who may appear just about as disagreeable as we appear to ourselves on occasion and find that we can actually have an I-you relationship with that person despite the appearances because you're not wishing that the disagreeable behavior experience joy or the mental afflictions have a really nice day any more than you look at a person with let's take my favorite example swine flu you're not saying, you know, as you look at the person with the swine flu, you're not saying, may your mucus flow unimpededly. <laughs> may the virus flourish in a bouquet of, you know, phlegm. You're not wishing the virus any happiness at all. You're not wishing the symptoms. May you sneeze louder. May your headache throb more powerfully. All of this is, of course, ridiculous. You're looking, you're seeing, there's a person here who's really suffering from the swine flu. And may the flu be gone, and may that person be well. And so we're simply attending the person, and it's pretty easy. Even though a person with swine flu is really not all that attractive, on the whole. So, so breaking down the barriers all the way out to the, the one that's the hardest. And by, by the time that's broken down, then it's really like the blockages of the, of the, the blockages of the nutties in the heart that block the flow of loving kindness. They've all been cleansed. You've brought in Rotor Rooter. That's our, our company in America for cleaning out your pipes, right? It's the Rotor Rooter for the heart. <laughs> and so that your heart flows freely and you attend to whoever it is. And, you're, and the Christians, again, I draw on this because love is so central to Christianity and boy do they know a lot about it. But for the Christians in the theistic context, to be able to look at another, look into their eyes and see Jesus gazing back. You know, the great mystics, the great contemplatives, the great saints. And not only human beings, but with St. Francis of Assisi and others looking at other sentient beings and feeling that same love flowing out for every sentient being. But seeing the divine gazing back. And, and the divine is certainly lovable. The divine is love, therefore the divine is lovable, right? 
And so that's in the theistic context. We don't have to modify the terminology much to bring that back into a Buddhist context. If it's really true that every, every sentient being has a Buddha nature, or if we just keep to basic Pali Buddhism with no reference to the Buddha nature, does every sentient being have the capacity for liberation? Is any sentient being intrinsically distorted and malformed because of mental afflictions? And the Buddhist statement is uniform, unequivocal, and emphatic. All schools of Buddhism. No sentient being is intrinsically screwed or screwed up. That's a really important message. But if that's the case, you could be, att- you could be attending to anyone. You could take any of the great villains of history, attend to them and say, there's someone there with a, with a brightly shining mind. Heavily obscured, to be sure, but a brightly shining mind. There's someone there whose mind at its core is only obscured adventitiously by, as the Buddha said, by mental afflictions that come and go. Right? It's so, it's so refreshing. It's so inspiring to think, oh, you mean they come and go? You mean they could come and go and maybe not come? Like, just go? And what would be left? A person who becomes an arhat. A person who becomes a bodhisattva and a Buddha. So, that's a little bit about loving kindness. Slowly, slowly, moving out into enemy territory is where we need to go. I think that's enough. Good. Uh, I haven't read this note, so let's see this, but I know there is a really big juicy question from Nick, Nick Wallingford. And here's one from Ilsa.